Welcome to the Otherwise Podcast, Season 3. I'm your host, Casey Tigret. I'm an author, pastor, and spiritual director. The country is attempting to open back up, and um, there's been mixed results after COVID-19, reopening public spaces with restrictions. Sometimes some places have seen a spike in cases of new cases or existing cases of COVID-19. We really, ultimately, we don't know what's going to happen. But in the middle of all this, churches, churches have been faced with the question of when do we reopen? And the answer to that question has in a lot of ways been, well, we don't have to do it too soon because we have online church. And so without being able to meet in person, the ability to have online services or even stream on Facebook via an iPhone, whatever it might be, has provided people an experience of church that they've put online, the church where I serve. We've done a a big push towards having more of what we do, our content, our gatherings, move to an online format. So you could imagine how I felt when I picked up Jay Kim's book, Analog Church, in which he says, you know, summarizing here, church online, online church, a church that specifically and only meets online and finds its main gathering point online is not really church. And as I read that in preparation for this interview, I thought I need to ask him what he thinks now in the midst of a pandemic. But today our conversation is going to be around the idea of what the church is. The theological term is ecclesiology. What is church? What is not church? What should the church be? What makes up that? And how does the church respond to the growing cultural and technological revolution that continues to gain speed all around us. And Jay's a good person to talk about that. He writes in his book, Analog Church, with a lot of grace and a lot of openness, but also a a very confrontational and prophetic line about what the church should be and must be going forward. And so I can't wait for you to hear this conversation with Jay Kim. Jay, it's a pleasure to talk to you today. Thanks for taking some time to to chat with us. Yeah, absolutely, Casey. I'm happy to be on. So we we were talking actually about something that's going to pertain to the first question. I, I was joking with you about one of the things you learn as a podcaster is how to manage all the time zones. <laughs> so it's noon here. It's 10 where you are. Yep. You know, people from it. So just the wisdom of knowing where you are in the world both on a philosophical and like literally what time is it where I am? Yeah. It's, it's, it's a skill that you just, it's under, it's underappreciated really truthfully. No, it is. Well, <laughs> even more so today. I mean, I, honestly, the strange days we're living in now, I wake up most days and uh, it takes me a while to get my bearings, figure out what day of the week it is. <laughs> I'm glad to hear you say that. It's, <laughs> it's always good when you hear somebody else say something that you think is a little crazy. So yeah. it, at least I'm, there's two of us. That's exactly right. Yeah. Well, with that in mind, uh, I love to start conversations with the same question, and I'd love to put that to you, which is, uh, if you were going to define, begin to define the word wisdom, uh, the podcast we try to hover around that conversation and everything that we do, uh, if you were going to define the word wisdom, where would you, where would you begin your definition of that? Oh, man. Well, I'm 40. I turned 40. Well, I'll be 41 this summer. 
and uh, this isn't my answer, but it'll frame the answer. I thought that by this age, I'd be much further along in terms of having a definitive answer to that question. And I will just very candidly admit, you know, that I don't, <laughs> I don't have a great answer. Um, but uh, reassuringly, I've heard that from a lot of people uh, my age and older. And so that's comforting, you know, that, so I guess maybe a part of the answer would be, I don't think this is how I would define wisdom, but a, a defining characteristic of wisdom uh, is that it's elusive. It's what it feels mm -hmm. like to me. You know, I, I'm fascinated by the fact that, uh, you know, in the Bible, in the wisdom literature of the Hebrew scriptures, wisdom is personified as a woman, you know, mm -hmm. lady wisdom. And that's fascinating to me because it. Uh, it, you know, I think it implies in some ways that wisdom is um, alive and dynamic and on the move. You know, wisdom is not uh, a statue or a pillar that's static in a location where you can go and just draw upon it. It's a woman, you know, and uh, she's elusive. <laughs> she can be hard to find. So, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I think wisdom is elusive for sure. There's a definition, I think. Uh, f for me, um, uh, Dallas Willard is, uh, has all, has, his work has been so incredibly helpful for me in so many ways. And he, he talks about wisdom as a settled disposition of the soul to act in accordance with knowledge. Hmm. Uh, and I like so much of that definition, um, mostly just as a reminder for me in those moments uh, that are very common when I am unwise you know when my my soul is unsettled when i'm anxious and constantly looking for a solution uh, rather than a settled disposition that really thinks inwardly and then has the discipline and um, practices the regular rhythms of, of acting in accordance with what i know to be true and right and good and beautiful and just and all those things so uh, yeah, maybe that, that's a starting point for me, I think. There's something about that conversation and turning 40 that is so incredibly relevant. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't really start thinking about wisdom necessarily until I turned 40 and realized I knew a lot and I was utterly helpless with what I knew. Mm, yeah. And how do you, what do you do then with what you know? Mm. And the Dallas Willard uh, material was so helpful in that as it's been to so many people and people who listen to the podcast you uh, work as pastor mm -hmm. and so bringing that elusive pursuit that pursuit of that elusive wisdom how does that affect the way that you walk with people uh, in your church and in your community that's a great question uh, Probably at least where I am and sort of based on who I am and my stage of life and all those things, I think probably um, the most influential piece is um, the, my willingness or lack thereof, depending on sort of, you know, my wherewithal to model the pursuit of that elusive thing you know, mm. not embody its um, uh, attainment necessarily, although, because, because again, it's elusive, you know, so I, you know, but rather to model the pursuit, to, to model sort of a constant focused uh, part, participatory 
creative participation in, in the work of, of pursuing wisdom, which, you know, that comes down to lots of things, you know, the scriptures and prayer and conversations with the right people and asking the right questions. And um, so I, I try, uh, I don't know how good I am at it, but I do try to model that pursuit as best as I can with folks and uh and and i benefit greatly from having people in my life who model it for me as well yeah so much goodness to that the idea of go with me as i take this journey versus come to me because i've already arrived yeah and there's an i I love what you said there because there is so much in, in a culture that sometimes walks tries to turn away from or walk away from the idea of experience so much of this is about experience it's about being a part of something and and it's not just about having your knowledge reframed it is that's part of it but it's also about being with a person and experiencing the presence of a person who's pursuing wisdom and an invitation to go with them that's a lot of what you hint at and, well, not hint at, um, you directly take on in your book, Analog Church. And early on in the book, there's something that I have, there's just an idea that I've always loved. And this idea of the resurrection of vinyl mm-hmm. for of records. Talk a little bit about that. You, you make a real passing reference to it, but the resurrection of vinyl has this power. And what is that? You, you talk about that early on in the book. Yeah, I, I read about it first several years ago in a book called The Revenge of Analog by David Sachs. And um, it's a fascinating book. He just basically goes through uh, each chapter. He explores the comeback, you know, of particular analog mediums that we thought were just long gone and were never coming back. Uh, like, you know, moleskin journals and, you know, um, uh, handwritten letters and you know, a variety of things like that. And one of his chapters is on vinyl records. And uh, this isn't conjecture. It's not, you know, hypothetical. It's like statistically speaking, uh, vinyl records in the last decade or so have made this like incredible comeback in the midst of the digital age. And that's not surprising to most people listening to this because either you or someone you know probably collects vinyl records. And what a fascinating thought, you know, that in a world when I have access to like over 50 billion songs in my back pocket on Spotify or whatever, uh, people are still willing to pay $20, $30 for this big clunky thing, you know, that you um, have to put on a record player and drop that needle just right. Yeah. And um, it just feels so counterintuitive but it feels counterintuitive when looking at it through the lens of efficiency, for sure. But yeah. when we look at it through the lens of human experience, and that's what David Sachs actually says in the book, uh, he's quoting somebody who's in the vinyl record business. But, um, you know, he, they, I'm paraphrasing the quote here, but they basically say like digital is the peak of efficiency, but vinyl or analog is the peak of human experience. And that's so true. You know, I think that's one of the key reasons why vinyl's making this beautiful comeback is like, sure, it's pretty easy for me to type on my little phone screen and get whatever song I want. 
but man it's a whole other thing to like feel and smell the you know the jacket of the record and pull it out and feel the grooves and drop it just so on the record player and then hear the scratch of the needle and then it catches and the music you know and there's a warmth to it that's very different than digital and yeah uh, even just talking about it i can sort of viscerally feel the experience <laughs> and it's so human and uh beautiful that way so it's not surprising to me that it's coming back in the midst of the digital age because i think we're hungry for those types of experiences where we can see and taste and touch and feel you know yeah well, in, in this, somebody listening might, might be like, wow, that was a random aside. <laughs> but uh, it ties into the very first, one of the first stories you tell in the book is about uh, a friend that you knew who you, you came down to the point, he was an EDM DJ yeah. and went to a church. And the experience was so much like the clubs that he played in that he basically said, I, I was, he basically didn't say this, but you, it's what was underneath what he was saying. He was looking for something, an experience that was transcendent. Yeah. And as we're talking about vinyl, the interesting thing that happened in me, and I know some generations won't have this, but my parents had vinyl because they grew up with it mm -hmm. and they kept theirs. And so as a kid, I dove into their collection and most of my musical history came from you know, pulling these albums out and flinging them on and being like, well, what is this? Let's find out what this is. And so when we talk about vinyl, it is an experience, but it's also, for me, it's something of my history. It's yeah. tying into this deeper stream of music. Yeah. And, and is there a better <laughs> analogy for the church hmm. that it is this non-efficient experience of something that ties us in to a bigger, deeper history. Does that resonate with what you've found and what you've seen and what you think based on what, you, what you've what you been writing in Analog Church? Yeah, 100%. Uh, you just said it so beautifully. Um, and again, it sounds counterintuitive when looking at it through the lens of, you know, I don't know, uh, marketplace commodities, but the church is totally inefficient. <laughs> you know, it's like grossly inefficient to participate in the life of a church like it's just you know it's messy and it can be really annoying and some people are a nuisance and some people you want them to be like your best friends but they don't give you the time of day and uh, sometimes the sermons are really boring and the music isn't to your liking and the you know the the communion cracker wafer is like always stale and gets stuck in your teeth and there's just like so much about it that you're just like ugh. You know, so it is really grossly inefficient, but um, man, there therein lies the beauty, you know, to mm -hmm. plunge ourselves into this incredibly inefficient, uh, often uncomfortable thing that shapes us and molds us into uh, not just a particular type of person, but I think most importantly, into a particular type of people, mm -hmm. um, which is something that particularly now, you know, in the year 2020, and especially now with everything, this sort of forced isolation that we're experiencing in the midst of this cultural moment that we're, we're in, man, we just, we need that so much. And um, I think we're feeling that, you know, we're, we're viscerally beginning to feel some of that longing and that hunger um, to be inefficient. You know, here where I live in, in California, at least as we're recording this uh, in the midst of sort of the shelter in place 
um, orders because of you know COVID-19, they just started lifting some of the restrictions. So restaurants starting this week actually are now allowed to have outdoor seating. And immediately as I've, you know, driven down the road, I, I, they're packed. <laughs> Just like people are like, I don't care if it's, you know, raining or it was raining actually a couple of weeks, uh, about a week ago. And I had several friends who were like, even if it's raining, I'm doing it. I'm sitting on a patio at a restaurant with friends, umbrella in hand, and we're just going to spend some time together because I, you know, I can't just keep doing the digital Zoom meeting thing over and over again. So yeah, it's inefficient, you know, but um, it's again, beautifully human and it's what we need. Yeah. In the book, you, you are very clear and definite in a critique of a couple things. The impact that digital, because anytime you say analog, we're talking about analog versus digital. Anytime you say analog, you automatically propose the the opposite. So there's a tension there. There's a dialectic that you've set up. And you talk about the impact of digital on our culture, but also the impact of digital on the church. So maybe if people are, sometimes we're so deep in the forest that we miss what the trees really look like. What has the impact of digital digital progress, culture, and even philosophy, what has the impact of that been on the church? Yeah, there's a lot there. Um, I think maybe the most succinct way to, to talk about it would be that uh, digital technologies are built, in my, in my observation, they're built on three primary values. Um, and those values are speed, uh, choice and individualism. Um, and that, you know, that should resonate with most people it's by speed. I just mean digital technologies are always getting faster by choice. I just mean they're constantly expanding the boundaries of, of our options. You know, you can go on Amazon and find 200 versions of anything, you know, and, um, and then individualism, like increasingly. So all of our digital experiences are becoming curated and personalized to suit our preferences and our likings and our sort of unique personalities and quirks and, and tendencies and all those things. Scary thing is like, we don't even personalize it ourselves anymore. You know, there's machine algorithms that are curating our digital experiences now for us because they know us so well in some ways. Um, and in other ways, they don't know us at all. But anyway, so speed, choice, individualism. And I think the way it's impacting the church and we, the people who are the church, is that, you know, when those values go unchecked and, and held unaccountable for long enough and they become unhinged in some ways, um, they turn in on themselves. And so the speed of the digital age is making us really impatient. The choices, the endless array of choices uh, is making us incredibly shallow. Like why, you know, sink deeply into any one thing when you have an endless array of choices before you, you can just move on to another option. Um, like uh, dating apps are a prime example of this, you know, just swipe left or swipe right. I mean, that quickly, you can just move on to another option. And in that case, option means like another human being. Like you're just, you know, so crazy. So uh, it makes us incredibly shallow. And then um, the individualism actually works to, to make us incredibly isolated. You know, we just, uh, and I think increasingly so, we're feeling this uh, in the digital age. And so the problem with that when it comes to the church is that um, 
you know, as we grow impatient and shallow and isolated, those things stand in direct opposition, in my view, to a life of following Jesus, you know, to the biblical model of what the Bible would call discipleship, uh, which is a patient and deep and communal work. So um, I think that's the major issue at hand. And, and that's the thing we have to not just be mindful of, but the reality that probably um, we need to confront in some ways. And so that is a overarching culture thing. So from dating apps to Amazon to things like that, I think there is probably a segment of people who would make the argument and say, well, I'm like that in every other way except for my spiritual life. Like that's a different thing. Mm-hmm. Address that. Is that, a, is that a possibility? Can we make that sort of divide between, well, I'm like that in all my consumer choices, but church is different? Yeah, that's a great question. I, you know, I, I don't want to, it's not monolithic, right? So it's not like, hey, this is true for every person who uses digital technology. If you use it, you're going to become this sort of impatient, you know, shallow. That's not true. I mean, I, I know lots of people who uh, leverage digital technologies responsibly and um and almost all of them, I will say, have very clear written limits on how they use digital technologies. They have times throughout the day where it's like, this is when I allow myself to email and check social media and do all these things, and then I shut it down. You know, And, and I think there's some, some other people who have written about some really helpful practices along those lines, um, guys like Andy Crouch and, and uh, John Mark Comer, um, folks like that. But... Uh, so it's not monolithic. However, I would say no matter who you are and no matter how much or how little you use digital technologies, the reality is our usage of said technologies, it forms us. Like we don't have a choice in that matter. The stuff we use forms us. That's true. Uh, in a biblical sense, you know, there's um, the Bible makes clear that sort of we are all being formed in a particular way or direction. Uh, the writer Jamie Smith, James K. A. Smith, he writes that um, he has this fantastic phrase. He says that uh, we are we all live leaning forward, you know, and the only choice we have is which direction in which we are leaning. Right? What what is the telos or the end toward which we are leaning forward? Um, so if we allow digital technologies to play, to take, you know, places of influence and, and power in our lives where they don't belong, then I would say there's no, you don't have a choice in the matter. Those technologies are shaping you and reshaping you, unforming you and reforming you in um, ways that, you know, we, we may not even be aware of. So. Uh, yeah, I'm not arguing for like, hey, let's all become Luddites and throw away anything with, you know, electricity pulsing through its veins. Not, not at all. You know, I have a deep appreciation in many ways for um, the technologies of our day, but we just have to make sure that uh, we don't place them on pedestals where they become idols that, um, you know, make us something less than human. Yeah. And that that is the important note is that it's everything we do is shaping us we're becoming something dallas used to talk about how everyone is in the process of spiritual formation just depends on which direction you know it's much like jamie smith's statement too 
And we see that not only in individuals, but we also, part of what you spend time on, because the book is called Analog Church, is you, you do take time to talk about the individual, but also about the corporate and how churches are embracing the, the speed and the um, choice and the individualism in the way that they connect with people. What, what is the fruit of that? What have you seen come out of churches embracing the speed and the choice and the individualism that the uh, digital age has offered? I think most churches are, are doing that with good intentions because they want to try to reach as many as they can and they see digital technologies as a medium by which they can expand their reach. That's a very popular phrase, particularly in evangelical circles, you know, expand reach, reach more people with the gospel. None of that stuff is inherently bad. Um, but, you know, I'll just use a couple of examples. We are, we are, I mean, right now, especially in the midst of the coronavirus and sheltering in place, all churches, you know, have gone completely digital. Uh, and yeah, and, I had to laugh yeah. as I was reading the book and I thought, well, this all sounds different right now because no one can go anywhere. <laughs> yeah, totally. But even before this, there were so many churches that, um, were just, they were pouring so much time and energy and money and resources into ramping up their digital presence or their online presence. And the thought behind that was, you know, again, speed, uh, choice, individualism. It's like, man, people want stuff that they can get really fast. They want choices. So we just, you know, we, we have lots of online options that they can watch and choose from. And it's very individualized. Like they can just watch it anytime they want to from the comfort of their living room. It's like Netflix for Christians, you know, or something. And uh, that's fine, I guess. But if we're not careful, um, you know, we, we can miss formational questions in the midst of that. So if we invite people to, uh, watch this endless array of choices of services and sermons and whatever, and to do so quickly and stream it on their TV and to do so from the comfort of their living room, just individually, maybe their family or just alone at home. You know, if we do that, then what are we in, what are we doing in terms of people's understanding of what it means to be the church? Well, essentially you've turned the church uh, into um uh, basically a purveyor of content, you know, like the, now people begin to understand the church as a source of content, a, a, a group somewhere in a building that produces content that I can then go consume as I please. You know, I can binge watch a bunch of services like I do a show on Netflix, or I can just sort of watch, you know, half-heartedly, maybe 10 minutes of the worship music, and then I'm bored and I move on to the next. Well, I would suggest that that's actually not at all church. Like, by definition, none of that is what it means to be the church. That stuff is helpful, I guess, you know, watching a sermon, listening to the song, maybe even singing the song in your own living room as you're watching. That's all stuff that Christians can do, but that in and of itself is not the church. 
the church is the body of Christ, right? The gathered people of God who creatively participate together uh, in offering our lives as worship to God and in turn to be shaped by his spirit. Again, I said this earlier, not into a particular type of person primarily, but into a particular type of people. And if we, you know, if churches just are constantly sort of leveraging the digital thing, the reality is digital technologies are designed to help us exchange information but they are not designed to help us participate in transformation. And, and that's, I'll stand by that, you know, forever. Like that's just the limitation of digital technology. It's a great medium for um, getting content out there, but it is not a great medium at all for inviting creative participation. And I think creative participation is a, tre a tremendously important part of what it means to be the church. Um, so I think as church leaders, we, we just have to be really mindful of that and thoughtful about uh, how we leverage the technologies of our day. What I hear, and I, there's so much good in what you just said, what I hear also in this is the age-old divide between evangelism and discipleship. The divide between having getting people to make a decision you know, and I, you can put air quotes on this if you want to or not, but getting to people to make a decision about their salvation and getting people, inviting people into a relationship and a process and practices that are transformation. One seems like it can be done digitally. Mm -hmm. The other is is way too gra you know, granular, getting into the life and the regularity of, of a relationship. Does that, does that resonate with you? Totally. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think for both of us, you know, having been influenced by Willard, he's big on this, you know, that the life of following Jesus is truly a life uh, of following, you know, not, not making a one-time commitment, but living a life where you are following uh, Jesus. Um so yeah, I'm with you. I, you know, I had a, a friendly conversation on another podcast a few months ago with a pastor in the Pacific Northwest who leads um, uh, the online ministries of a very large church up there. And I, just, I found it really fascinating that almost, and he's a great guy and the church is doing great work. So it's not, you know, a knock on them, but I did find it fascinating. Almost all of his um, argument in support of leveraging digital and online technologies and putting so much energy and resources into it, almost all of the argument was based on decisions, meaning uh, commitments to, you know, salvation, salvific decisions, you know, people who essentially were watching and then they uh, say something in the chat box, you know, like, I want to make a decision for, the, for Christ or, uh, they check a box that says, you know, I want to commit my life to the Lord, you know, that sort of thing. The entire, almost the entire argument was based on that. And so I asked at certain points, well, what happens after that? You know, that's like the, that's like the, you know, the introduction to a book, but the book continues on. I mean, what, what happens, you know, and he was, he was a great guy and he was really honest. And he says like, yeah, we're still working on that. We're still trying to figure out 
how to do that. And, and I think that's the key there. You know, that's the rub is like, how do you do that if the introduction to the experience essentially was all digital? How do you then transition folks from that reality to an analog embodied, what I would call theologically an incarnational in the flesh reality, which is what all human beings need because humans are embodied creatures, you know, who are desperately need embodied realities to experience fullness of life and change and transformation. Uh, and that's a reality that we're all viscerally feeling, I think, right now as we're sheltering in place. You know? so many things I always wished you know as the longer I go into this life of talking about spiritual formation I really wish Jesus had told the parable of the prodigal son and at the end then said and then the next day mm. you know yeah, and what happens awesome. when the prodigal comes back to the ranch yeah. you know what happens the next day the next morning because yes. there will always be another you know far country yeah to come totally. up yeah um, that's right and before people get in the book, you do make a distinction, and I think you borrow from Ed Stetzer on this, uh, the difference between online church and church online. Mm-hmm. Because as you've mentioned a couple of times, and, and this was my chuckling when I was reading the book, was you know, in COVID, all church content has gone online yeah. in one way or another. Yeah. And so now we're really, we're really forced to kind of put into practice, okay, so, so what is church? And I think more people are thinking of that. What is the distinction between online church and church online? Some people may go, well, that's just semantics, but you actually have a, a good divide between those two things. Yeah, I mean, like you said, I'm borrowing from Ed Stetzer, who wrote an article about this um, a couple of years ago, I think, and he makes that distinction that I found really helpful. Uh, and, and some of it is semantics. You can reverse the order of those words and explain it exactly the same way. But either way, there... I'm, I'm, you know, what Stetzer was trying to do and and what I'm borrowing there is to make the distinction. And the distinction basically is this, you know, that churches can, and especially in this time now, should probably be online in some form or fashion. You know, our church is online. We We were not online before. We never live streamed, although we did have our sermons on our website, but we never live streamed or did, you know, small groups online or classes online. We didn't ever do any of that stuff. Uh, but we do all of that stuff now, you know, because it's what we have. And so, um, it is, but what we're communicating to our people is like, this is a temporary compromise. It's a concession we are making in this time because the wise and responsible thing to do, at least for now is to not, um, uh, physically be present with one another, which we we're grieving and it, it bums us out. We're really sad and looking forward to that day when we can get together in person again. But for now, this is what we have. So we're making this concession. So in, in many ways, even before coronavirus and long after coronavirus, I'm okay with that. You know, I, I'm okay with churches, um, leveraging online realities as a supplemental part of what they do. And again, I think we have to be 
so cautious and careful and thoughtful about how our leveraging of online uh, technologies and digital technologies might be forming and unforming and reforming us as a people. But as long as we're doing that, I think that there are, there probably are some um, balanced, you know, helpful ways to leverage. Uh, but what Stetzer says is certainly that's true. Churches can and maybe should be online, but you cannot be an online church. And what he means by that, what I mean by that, is that you cannot have a reality, an entity that you call the church that is based in online reality. That in some form or fashion, um, even if you can't be in person, you will have a deep longing and desperation for embodied incarnational realities if you truly are the church, if you truly are becoming the people of God together. You know, a lot of people who, uh, you know, are in defense of sort of digital technology as a means of, you know, sharing the gospel uh, or, or whatever, however you want to say it, they'll use um, examples like, uh, the underground churches, you know, in parts of the world where Christians are persecuted. Uh, and they'll say technology has always been, been the means to get the gospel out there. First radio and television and, and now digital technologies, you know, to Christians in parts of the world where Christianity is persecuted. I'm all for that. You know, and, and I agree. I think that digital technologies are a really helpful tool in sharing the gospel in parts of the world where, um, where it's lacking. However, those examples in that argument actually supports my point because what happens in most of those parts of the world? They develop underground churches, literally risking life and limb. They choose to try their absolute best to get together in person with other Christians, even though uh, if they're found, they, they literally are risking arrest, maybe even death, you know, and yet they, they choose to try to be together as much as possible, you know, and so that's an undeniable reality. We have that longing deep in our body and bones uh, for other embodied human beings. And that's just undeniable, and it's something we have to pay attention to. Yeah. And back to the vinyl discussion, too, there is that, for me, and I know for a few people specifically who listen to this, there's also that sense of trying to connect with something that may, reminds us that we're part of something bigger. 2,000-year uh, faith, 2,000 years of Christian history. How do you see something like you talk about practices in the book, but I was just curious, how do you see something like the church calendar, you know, the, the ancient way of the different parts of the year based around the major movements of Christian theology? How do you see something like that being a practice that could help us in this navigation of a digital, a digital influenced age? Yeah, that's that's a, a great thought. I, I think it has so many benefits, you know, the Christian calendar. Um, I was just talking to a friend yesterday, uh, and he was talking about um, nature and uh, just taking walks in his neighborhood, like right now. And he was sharing a story with me that uh, just a couple of days ago, or maybe a couple of weeks ago, he was taking a walk in his neighborhood in the midst of everything happening right now, you know, coronavirus, sheltering in place, 
uh, and sort of, you know, just a, a such sadness and grieving all over our country for a variety of reasons. Uh, he told me he saw a, and he's not like an overly emotional guy. He saw a flower blooming on the side of the road. And he said he was moved to tears. And as he was explaining it, what he told me was he was moved to tears because this flower, he realized this part of God's good created world that is so disordered, but still has these glimpses of order in the seasons, you know, um, he told me he was moved to tears because he quickly, just immediately, as the spirit sort of moved in his heart and mind, he realized in spite of everything going on in the world, this flower still blooms. And its color is just as vibrant as it would be if none of this was happening. And uh, its color is just as vibrant as it would be if more than this was happening, you know, or anything in between. And what he, he began to, it just began to expand sort of his mind and his, his heart in such a way that he, he was telling me, he said, I started thinking about like the rain and the sun and all of creation. And what I realized was, man, like the stuff of earth that is timeless and forever has a rhythm and a cadence to it that reminds us that there is a good God who orders the world in a good way, and we bring disorder because of our brokenness and, and uh, fallenness and pain and all those things. But our good God is just, he continues to be faithful. And I think the Christian calendar is one of those things. It's a liturgy, a work of the people that almost embeds us in a very similar train of thought the flow of seasons, that no matter what is happening right now, our good God who ordered the world in a beautiful way is still on the move. And there are timeless, rich traditions uh, that followers of Jesus have been practicing for millennia now that um, embed us in a reality that lifts our gaze above the sort of uh, fray of the everyday. And uh, in those ways, and in so many more, particularly in the digital age, when we can get so wrapped up in the you know social media feed that's just constantly bombarding us with stuff that's trying to grab our attention, I think embedding ourselves in the Christian calendar and in the seasons uh, that take you know days and weeks and months to experience together that it does um, really formational work that I think we so desperately need, especially today. Yeah. I was just thinking about the, the, and I use beauty loosely here, but just the beauty of the fact that most of this COVID challenge began during Lent. Hmm. And I had a friend who said to me, I feel like Lent is Lenting really hard this year. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. And then Easter came in kind of the middle, like the apex of this. Yeah. And then we went into Pentecost as a lot of states were opening. And there was this new, like, what's the world going to be like? And now we're in ordinary time. And yeah. it's that time when it's not a holiday, but it's it's still time. There's just so much to that that roots us back where we are. And, and that's what your book does so well, especially with practices. Uh, the practices of the church are things that root us 
into a place. And you, you, you give a whole chapter to the Lord's Supper, to communion. What is the resonance for a digital age of something like communion, like the Lord's Supper, like the Eucharist? Mm. Well, it's really difficult to eat and to drink together online. Um, we've tried during COVID-19. Not impossible, just Not impossible. really difficult, really difficult. Yeah. Well, you know what part of it is impossible, though? You know, I, I, uh, I am Korean-American, and so growing up, um, you know, the way uh, Eastern cultures in particular eat, it's almost always family-style dining, right? Large plates. Uh, so for me, for, for my tr- my um, my my uh, upbringing, it was always a bowl of rice. That was mine, my bowl of rice. And then uh, shared dishes amongst the family. And so we would all sort of go into the same dish, you know, and pull into our bowl of rice and eat that way. Um, and my family, uh, my wife and I and our two kids, she's Chinese American and, and same tradition basically of eating. So we eat very much so that way still in our family at home most of the time, not all the time. Uh, and that is impossible to do online. <laughs> I have found that impossible to do online. You know, I made this delicious dish that I want to share with you. Let's share it together. That's not possible yeah. online. No. Uh, what we can do is like, hey, I bought, I brought my burrito. You brought your burrito, and we're just each eating a burrito. You know, um, and that's nice, but it falls short. So, getting back to the bread and the cup of the Eucharist um, or communion, whatever uh, your tradition calls it, uh, communion has always been, and we forget this, particularly in our sort of late modern Western world that's so hyper individualized. And that's been amplified by the digital age, just how individualized everything has become. Um, but communion as a tradition of the Christian church has always been communal in nature. This is why there's so much debate online um, about whether or not you can do digital communion. You know, can we, can, can we take the bread and the cup, like if we're not actually physically together? And some churches are doing it, others are not. And that's neither here nor there for this conversation, but the fact remains communion is by its very nature communal. And um, you have to show up and the beauty, like the richness and fullness of taking the bread and the cup is that you are taking of the same bread and drinking of the same cup. And I don't necessarily mean that physically, like you all have to drink from the same chalice necessarily, but that that which holds the, the, the body and blood is coming from the same place. Remember, Christ is not, you know, he's not saying like, hey, here are bits and pieces of my body for each one of you. He says in the singular, this is my body. This one bread is my body. And he breaks it, the singular bread, and then it's passed around around the table. Same thing with a cup. This is the cup, this cup, singular, is my blood. You know, uh, and every time you drink it, do so in remembrance of me. So uh, that's sort of one way of framing it, but it's an important way. You know, I think the bread and the cup of communion is um, it's a communal thing. And uh, this is not a critique of whether your church is doing communion online or not. In fact, our church is taking communion. Uh, over Facebook Live, we ask people to bring the elements, but we also admit that it falls short of the reality. 
Uh, but it's mm-hmm. what we have for now, so it's what we'll do. But uh, we long for the day when we can take the same bread and the same cup together soon. Yeah. When it comes to what you've written, and um, the book is in the world now, and it's and, and what you've what you've thought and prayed over and worked over, you've sort of said. It's, I tell people it's kind of like sending your kids off to college, mm-hmm. like they they go do their thing, and yeah. you, you, your choices are really pretty much over. Yeah. But what is a what is a gift that you would want someone who read this book, uh, Analog Church, to come away with? What is one thing that you would want them to leave? The experience of reading carrying with them that's that's a great question thanks for asking it um you know there's so much i, I think maybe the primary thing is uh, i was thinking and praying for quite a bit writing this book for those who are serving and leading uh, faith communities in some form or fashion and so uh, whether that's you know as a pastor on staff at a church or a lay leader or whatever else um, so I guess, you know, one of the things that's really uh, part of my heartbeat behind the book is that people would um, uh, see the unique lines and contours of their own lives and the communities they serve and begin to fall in love, maybe for the first time or once again, with their calling place at a particular time to a particular people. Because in the digital age and in the social media age in in particular, you know, everything is sort of designed to drive us toward comparison, which so often leads to contempt, you know, and then it it turns us into something really shallow. It just turns us into like copycats and caricatures, you know, we just end up trying so hard to look like the sort of person that social media Uh, tells us we're supposed to look like if we're going to be effective, you know, in whatever endeavor we're trying to, to partake in. And uh, I just think that's not only dangerous, I think it's really destructive, you know, to the human soul. And I think it's destructive to embracing and living out the unique calling of God on our lives. And so if there's one thing Um, that would be the one thing. I hope that the book helps folks begin to see and realize, appreciate and fall in love with uh, for the first time or again, you know, anew, um, the unique calling that they have in their particular place and time with their particular people because nobody else has been called, you know, the way you have been called to the people you've been called to in the way in which you've been called to them. Uh, And so you have a unique calling, you know, and I do too, every single one of us. And um, if we can be faithful to that, then I'm hopeful that the future of the church is really bright. Yeah. Thank you so much. I really appreciate this conversation, man. Yeah. Thanks so much, Casey. listening to that conversation was there something that Jay said that ignited or stirred a place in you deep in you 
Was there a belief you hold or held about church that he challenged? Was there a moment of pause for you where you thought, I need to think more about that? I hope there was. There were a few for me as well. And I hope you heard him saying, you know, the the idea of having resources on the internet, a church having resources online or via social media is not a bad thing. But knowing who we really are, who the church is supposed to be, that's that's the key discussion. And that's the discussion I'd love to see continue because The church is the place where people are formed, one of the key places where people are formed. And not just a building, but people are formed through being a part of a people. And that sounds redundant, but whenever you get people together, you know, Jesus had to command us to forgive each other. And the reason why is because if you hang around with people long enough, you will at some point have to forgive them. And so gathering together in a face-to-face or a proximity kind of space is the way that that we are meant and shaped to grow. J.Y. Kim is pastor of teaching and leadership at Vintage Faith Church in Santa Cruz, California. He also serves on the core leadership team of the Regeneration Project, and he co-hosts the Regeneration Podcast. He lives in Silicon Valley with his wife and two children. His book that we talked about today is called Analog Church, Why We Need Real People, Places, and Things in the Digital Age. It's available now. You can follow the links in the show notes to get a copy of that. If you're listening on iTunes, thank you. Uh, If you haven't rated or reviewed the podcast, again, please do that. If you're listening on Spotify or on my website, Uh, Thank you so much for doing that. Please rate and review on Spotify and or if you're on another platform, do whatever uh, that platform does. And if you need to, you know, someone who you think would be benefit would benefit from hearing this, uh, feel free to share this with them. I think that would be fantastic. And so as we go, may you begin to rethink what does it mean for me to be with other people in this digital age? And especially in this, are we open? Are we opening? How far open are we? What does it mean to gather? And what does it mean to set our intention on being a part of a group of people, not just consuming content? Until next time, be well, live wisely. Peace, friends. Peace.